from the moment their day starts and they get ready to go to work, their mindset is just focusing on the very next task, the most immediate task in front of them. And so much is building up in their mind as they're commuting to work, as they get into work, as they get into their first meeting, as they process the first meeting. There's so much in their head that's going on and they're just not ready to listen. They're not available to listen to who they're going to speak to next because they haven't cleared their own mind to be available to be listening. If that sounds even a little bit like you, then you're listening to the right podcast. Hey podcast, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Oscar Trimboli. I put a post up on LinkedIn about my desire to become a better listener, and one of the commenters recommended me to Oscar Trimboli's page, and when I decided to check out his work, I was like, wow, I need to get this guy on the podcast, and that's what I decided to do. What we're gonna be talking about is deep listening, how to become a better listener. We're gonna be talking about why listening is important why it's a good habit to inculcate some of the framework and some of the understanding that's required to really start the process of becoming a better listener and then some tactical tangible habits that you can put in place in your very next conversation to really start that process and start having better and deeper conversations i hope you enjoy you know, I was reading the book a few days ago. I'd love for us to start with you telling the story of Mary um, from the first opening pages of the book. Could you do that for us? Yeah, Mary's not only a real person, she's someone that I almost meet every day, somebody who's so frantic, somebody who's so disconnected, somebody who's running from meeting to meeting. In fact, not only running from meeting to meeting, but from the moment their day starts and they get ready to go to work, their mindset is just focusing on the very next task, the most immediate task in front of them. And so much is building up in their mind as they're commuting to work, as they get into work, as they get into their first meeting, as they process the first meeting. There's so much in their head that's going on and they're just not ready to listen. They're not available to listen to who they're going to speak to next because they haven't cleared their own mind to be available to be listening. The big myth, Robert, of listening is that we need to get focused on the speaker first. That's handy, but it's not productive. The most important person we all need to listen to first is ourselves. We need to clear some space in our own mind for the conversation that's about to approach. But most of us are just processing the next thing and not even conscious that we've got so much noise in our head that we can't pay attention. In fact, it's happening right now to you listening to this podcast, whether you're driving, whether you're in the gym, whether you're running, whether you're doing chores, you've got distractions going on in your head right now. So the first myth of listening, Robert, is that we need to be focused on the speaker. And the reality is we need to be present. We need to notice where we're at first so we can be available to listen. So that's the story of Mary and many others out there. So tell me, if Mary's listening to that, what does she need to do? Does she need to start having less thoughts? Like when you say we need to listen to ourselves first, are we trying to stop that chatter? What exactly are we attempting to do? Most of us don't even know the chatter's there. 
So the first step is to become conscious that there's chatter taking place. And I want to break it down into some of its most practical elements as well. When we're listening to somebody else, there's some really basic maths at play, right? They, they speak at 125 words a minute, but you can listen at 400 words a minute. So your mind is programmed for distraction already. Your mind is fast enough that it can not only listen to what I'm saying, but it can process what they want to ask me about what I'm saying. They can use some historical evidence to go, what he's saying is true or false based on what I've noticed in the past. So the most practical thing we need to do is just notice the chatter going on. You don't remove it, but you can move it. You can move it to a side. Imagine a desk and you've got papers and books and a computer on it. There's always space to move things around on. So the first thing you want to do is become conscious of that. And the simplest thing to become conscious of that is to just take three deep breaths in through your nose, down into your chest, ideally all the way down to your diaphragm, and then let it come back out. Now, you don't need to do it like a yoga pose. You don't have to get into some zen-like state to do it. In fact, I'm doing it right now and you're probably not even noticing, but the act of getting oxygen to the brain, three simple deep breaths will help clear that space so you're available to listen. So that's an internal thing to do. The external thing to do is to switch your phone into flight mode, switch your device into flight mode and turn off any of the notifications, whether they're visual or audio. So those two simple things, Robert, notice and then switch off the external distractions will help you get to a place where it's possible to start to listen. I love that. So we need to notice the chatter and we need to do what we can to limit that amount of chatter or limit the distractions rather. For the person who's listening to this podcast and is wondering why they should care about trying to become a better listener at all. What would you say? Why is it important to practice these skills? Oh, well, it's really simple. Just don't listen to somebody and notice the cost of not listening really quickly. But the reality is, whether it's confusion, whether it's conflict, or whether it's chaos, the lack of listening in a workplace, in a relationship, removes trust. It basically, rather than adding more into the bank account of trust, uh, not listening removes trust very quickly. Not listening sends a signal to the person that speaking that you don't respect them. It sends a signal that you're more important than they are. And all those things may or may not be true, but without any training at all, we know when somebody's not listening to us and we process that in a way that's relatively judgmental. And if a project's ever gone off track at work, if a customer has bought from a competitor, if a great employee has left your organization, I can guarantee you that a lack of listening is one of the ingredients in why they've left. In fact, there's a great statistic that people don't leave organizations, they leave their managers and the number one reason why people leave their managers 
is people who leave those managers say they never listened to me. They never turned up to the meeting. That's the first example of not listening. Or when they did turn up to the meeting, they were so busy being distracted by their phone or anything else and they weren't paying attention. So the cost of not listening is huge. So I want to dig into that a little bit deeper because I think that often we hear what other people are saying, but we're not really hearing what they're saying. To bring up the quote or the statistic that you brought up, we can listen at 125, but we're thinking at over 900 words per minute. So a lot is being left unsaid. Dig into that for me. What are we missing when we're only listening to the words and we're not trying to get to that deeper meaning? Yeah, so as a speaker, I can speak at 125 words a minute. Robert, you can listen at 400 words a minute, but I can think at 900 words a minute. So the likelihood that the first thing out of my mouth is a well-formed articulation of what's in my mind, it's a one in 11 chance Mm -hmm. or about 9%. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had a less than single digit percentage chance of surviving a surgery, you'd ask for a second opinion from a doctor. 100%. Yeah, most of us never ask for the second opinion when somebody speaks. We make the assumption that the first thing they say is actually what they're thinking. And the reality is it's just the first 125 words in a brain that's got 900 words a minute. Now, if you think about the mind and the mouth working together like a washing machine. When we have thoughts in our head, it's like the washing machine being on wash cycle. The water's dirty, it's sudsy, it's moving around and it's uneven and it's hard to see through it. But then the washing machine moves on to rinse cycle. That's when we speak. And when we rinse, Uh, the synaptic connections in the mind form a neural pathway to the mouth and all of a sudden we say something. But the first thing the speaker will think as they're saying that is, have I said everything that's on my mind? Is what I've just said what I meant? And most of us as the listeners just accept what the person says the first time. Unless you're a great actor on the stage and you've rehearsed your lines really well, there's a 0% chance that the first thing somebody says is what they actually mean. So for a lot of us, we've noticed this phenomenon before. People might take a pause and you might be conscious enough not to interrupt them. And as they take the pause, they take this big deep breath in and they say, well, Robert, actually what I should have said, or they'll say, you know, Robert, what I meant to say was, or now that I think about it, or they might say, the most important thing I haven't said so far is, or now that I think about it a little bit longer, what matters to me is. Now, these magic code words start to unpick those extra 775 words, the gap between 900 and 125. And skillful listeners can preempt this. They can preempt this by a pause. They can preempt this by treating silence with respect, with reverence, with care and concern and listening to the silence fully. Equally, they can prompt it by asking three really simple questions. Tell me more. What else? 
I'm curious to know what else you're thinking on this topic. And as you say that, you'll notice that the washing machine moves to rinse cycle and the words they say become clearer and clearer and clearer depending on the number of times you ask that question. Now, if you ask that question too often, not only does it sound robotic, it sounds disrespectful and it sounds like you're not listening to them, but it's critical. If we really want to move our listening orientation away from yourself and onto them, that's when you become a deep listener. A deep listener isn't somebody who's listening to understand for themselves. They're helping the speaker make sense of what they're going to say or what they haven't said. And in that moment, you'll get people saying at the end of the conversation, wow, I really felt heard today. Oh, I, I love the way you listened to me. I was able to move forward. So listening for what's unsaid or level four listening is the ultimate ninja move of listening. So there's a lot I want to unpack. When I started this discussion, I was under the belief that the point of listening is for me to be able to understand the speaker better. But based on what you've just said, listening seems to be, from your perspective, a process of trying to help the speaker understand themselves better and really get those other 775 words out. So from your perspective, what is the purpose of a conversation? Why do people crave to be heard? I'm going to go way back to when you were conceived. Well, yeah. So at 20 weeks in your mother's womb, you can distinguish the sound of your mother's voice from any other voice, from any other noise from any other murmur that you discover as somebody who's about to be brought to life. At 32 weeks, you can distinguish Beethoven from Bon Jovi from Beaver. So you can start to listen uh, for music. So listening is the very first skill you ever learn, even before you're born, it's your birthright. And the very act of being born, Robert, when you get slapped as a baby or you come out into the world, you are born when you scream. You are born when you announce to the world that you are here and you spend the rest of your life screaming and you want the world to notice that you're there. So right from that act of birth, a lot of us navigate the world talking because we want to get noticed. We're going way back to our birthright and listening is the most simple, joyful and respectful act you can do for anybody else. So the purpose of communication, the purpose of listening is to help that person discover what they're thinking themselves, what they mean themselves, trying to help them make sense of the world around them. So listening at a simple level, if your orientation moves ultimately to think about helping the other person to listen to what they mean, automatically you as the listener understand what you make sense of that as well. But if all we're doing is trying to make sense of what the speaker is saying for us, well, the reality is we start to jump to conclusions, we jump to judgment, we don't really listen to understand. We might listen to solve or fix, 
or we might listen in judgment, or we might listen for a whole host of other reasons that are all orientated on ourselves. So the skillful, deep and masterful listener will help the listener, sorry, will help the speaker make sense of their world for themselves. And that's the act of listening. That's why it's such a powerful act and why it can make an impact beyond words for them. Thank you for that. When I was reading your book, you know, you made this, there was this one sentence where you described a conversation as it shouldn't just be one person is the speaker and one person is the active listener. The way that we've kind of set up this discussion is that the listener's job is to help the speaker better understand what they're trying to say or what they're feeling. But how does that change during the course of a conversation? How do we know when it's our time to speak, when it's our time to lead the discussion? How do we, you know, play along that line? Well, the first thing we want to notice is that we don't want it to be table tennis or a ping pong match where it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and the momentum's building as fast as possible there. You see, the conversation doesn't only ever be a one-way, I'm listening, you're speaking approach. Most conversations are simultaneous equations. They're dynamic systems. They're evolving. They're changing. Now, when is the right time for us to speak? If you're conscious enough, if you have cleared that space in your head, Robert, and you have been breathing deeply and you have switched off those distractions. By the way, the, a third tip for all of you while you're in conversation is uh, drink water. A hydrated brain is a listening brain. The brain is only 5% of the body's mass, yet it consumes 25% of the body's blood sugars and listening is a difficult task. So if you can get blood sugars to the brain faster and the fastest way to do that is to be hydrated. So if you drink a lot of coffee, you're going to have to drink a glass of water for every cup of coffee you have. A hydrated brain is a listening brain as well. So when, when is it our time to talk back to your question, Robert? The reality is if we're conscious, if we're present, if we're in a respectful state, it will become obvious because conversations are the most natural and organic thing possible, but only if we're present, only if we're not distracted and we have to set up that first platform, level one, listening, listening to yourself to be present enough to go, okay, now it's my turn. Now I'd like to ask something for them to listen to for me. And if you're in a great relationship with someone, whether that's a friend or a life partner, the reality is you can stay in silence with them on a road trip or during a dinner discussion. And that's perfectly okay. You're both relaxed about it. But too many of us think we need to fill in the space. And sometimes we just need to treat that silence with a little bit more respect and reverence, which people from the East, China, Korea, Japan, these very traditional uh, cultures and systems, the Inuit of North America, the Aboriginal communities of Australia, all of these people know that it's okay to be silent for a little bit as well. So that's also a good signal for when the time has changed for who's speaking and who's listening, Robert. So I think one thing that myself and many of the people that may be listening struggle with is that 
when there's an awkward silence, it's so awkward and so tense that it's almost a signal that the previous conversation was kind of bland and that we should try our best to think of something to speak about as quickly as possible. So what strategies would you recommend for someone who catches themselves in that awkward silence and isn't very used to just kind of sitting with it and may not be speaking with someone who's used to sitting with it? Mm. Well, part of the answer is in the language that the West uses already, and you've done it. We call it the pregnant pause, or we call it the awkward silence. So who made up that label? And why do we feel awkward? And it's probably because we haven't practiced. We haven't seen parents or teachers who use that silence well and use those labels like pregnant pause and awkward silence. And awkward may or may not be the case. Usually it's how we feel about it. It may not be how they feel about it. And here's a simple question you might want to ask. How did that last conversation go? So if you get to the point where the silence feels awkward, you might just simply ask them, hey, how did that last bit of the conversation go for you? And you might find very quickly that they didn't see or feel your silence as awkward at all. And it may be a judgment you're making about yourself. The simplest thing to do, Robert, to get into a state where we're comfortable with that just count to three when they're finished talking in your head, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. And quite often that pause, that silence is enough. We don't need silences to be when we're starting off 30 seconds, one minute, uh, 90 seconds. You can just practice out at three seconds. You wouldn't go into a gym and start on uh, 100 pounds straight away if you've never lifted weights, would you? I would not. So we shouldn't use long extended silences unless we're really comfortable with them either. And I think just practicing counting one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000 is a great starting point. Get comfortable with the three second pause and then you can move it out to five. You'd be surprised how simple it gets. I think the word awkward silence talks about us as the listener, it may not be true about the conversation or the silence. I think silence has got a bad rap. I agree with you. I think silence does have a bad rap. I'm interested in this idea of judging the conversation from your point of view when you really don't know how the other person feels about the conversation. And one of the questions you thought we should ask is, how did that conversation go for you? Literally, the first thing I thought when I heard that was, wow, I don't feel like myself and many of the people I know would be confident or comfortable enough to be so direct and say, how is this going for you? What are some strategies or how would you recommend we think about being so direct in conversation, asking something like, how did you feel about that last exchange? Yeah, I think it's the most honorable thing you can do for the relationship. And uh, too much of conversation is focused on what we say rather than thinking about how we say it. And given that 
a conversation is like complex maths. It's like a simultaneous equation where people are speaking and listening exactly at the in the same space. And whether I'm speaking or whether you're speaking, Robert, we're both trying to make sense of this for ourselves. We're trying to make sense of this for the other person. And what we do, we focus on letters and we focus on phrases and we focus on words and we focus on sentences and ultimately paragraphs and stories. So we do a lot to try and listen to what's being said. But what we don't do, what's really powerful, again, we can use this gym analogy, Robert, when I go into a gym, I have no idea what I'm doing, A, because I don't go to a gym, um, B, my exercise is running and swimming. But if I was to go into a gym and I was to pick up some weights and somebody else knew what they were doing, they'd probably show me how to pick up that weight correctly. Now, I've got a couple of friends of mine who are gym instructors who'll probably laugh when I say this, but there is a technique to lifting weight where your shoulder position is, where your back position is, how your knees are positioned. I'm assuming all these things go into lifting weights. The reality is, though, um, that's how you lift the weight. We know what the weight is. And just like a conversation, we spend an enormous amount of time in the conversation lifting up the weight, but we're not thinking about how we're doing it. And because listening is situational and relational, Robert, we'll listen differently to a policeman, to a parent. We'll listen differently to a school principal than we would a student. We'd listen differently to a doctor than we would to an accountant. So if we keep that in mind, every conversation is going to be dynamic and the most honorable thing you could do, and with the clients I work with, if you're in a 30-minute conversation, this is a great question to ask around the halfway point. Hey, how's this conversation going for you? Feels a little less direct than one I mentioned earlier on, but it helps both parties reflect on, oh, okay, let's jump out of what we're talking about and let's look at the process of how we're talking about it. In a one-hour meeting, you should ask that question about the 45-minute mark so you can improve the meeting as you go along as well. Yes, it takes a little bit of confidence, but I would also say if you're in a relationship of trust and you've known this person for a while, I think it's a signal to them that you want to get more out of the conversation for them and for you by asking, how's this conversation going? So Robert, how's this conversation going for us? I'm liking this conversation a lot. What I'm really focused on right now is trying to, I don't know, as an interviewer, there's this, um, this ego around asking good questions, right? And so one of the things that I've been working on is, you know, I prepared a list of questions, but I'm really, really just trying to go with the flow mm. and trying to pick out what I'm curious about based on what you've said previously. And so I think this conversation's going well because I think we're both doing a pretty good job at doing that. Mm. And I would say, how's this conversation going? And given your reflection there, Robert, you've got questions for your curiosity, but we're not doing this for you and I. We're doing this for those who are listening right now. So 
I'm curious what you think the audience would want to be asking me right now, rather than what's on the list of your interview questions. I think the audience might wonder who is Oscar Trimboli? Why does he care about listening? And how did he get into this at all? Mm. How many of those questions are on your list, by the way? One of them. Yeah, I thought so. And I think it's a, it's a common question I get asked. I'm on a quest. My quest is to create 100 million deep listeners in the world before I leave the planet. And I was lucky enough that when I grew up, I was the son of two first-generation migrants from post-war Italy who came to Australia with their parents. And we were in a school where there was 23 different nationalities and you got to learn phrases in all kinds of different languages. But at our school, one of the pastimes in high school was playing this Italian card game known as Briscola. And uh, teams divided up into nationalities. So we had people from war-torn parts of Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, coming to Australia at that time. There were many people fleeing South America, Brazil, Argentina, um, Chile, Uruguay. Uh, they brought the Spanish and Portuguese influence to our schools. And then from Eastern Europe, a lot of people were fleeing um, communist uh, Soviet parts of um, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Yugoslavia. And so you had these United Nations of card players, but the teams typically broke into their nationalities and spoke in their home tongue. And I, I can only speak English. I don't have another language. So I was kind of always the reserve. If there was a team of um, two people and someone was short, they'd pull me in. And what I learned really quickly, I was good at reading body language. I wasn't good at counting cards. And what I noticed was that I could pick people's body language about the kinds of cards they had in their hands. And then all of a sudden, when people discovered I was good at that, they wanted me on their team. So I was kind of the utility substitute for everybody there. But I really wasn't conscious of the fact I was listening uh, to body language in that time as just something I kind of thought about after the fact. And about oh, 11 years ago at Microsoft, uh, where I was a marketing director in Australia, one of the vice presidents, we were having a very tense meeting between our global headquarters, our regional headquarters in Singapore and our Sydney, Australia headquarters. And about the 20 minute mark, uh, I asked a question to the room and the room tone changed dramatically. We're in these fierce negotiations. And my vice president said at the end of the meeting, can you stay behind? And that's not a good sign. It's kind of like your wife saying to you, we need to talk. And uh, <laughs> Tracy sat me down and said, you completely changed the direction of the meeting by the way you listened and asked that question at the 20 minute mark. If you could code that, you could change the world. And I said, Tracy, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean code, code, or do you mean code? And at Microsoft, when you say code, code, it means write software. And she said, no, I mean code, code. You could code that into software and you could change the world. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, hmm, that's interesting and never thought anything about it. Eight weeks later, the tables were turned. We were the Australian head office. We had to work with all our states and territories to pass down the budgets we'd got from a global head office and an equally tense meeting hosted by our 
chief financial officer took place. And again, at the 20 minute mark, I asked a question, changed the state of the room. And Brian said to me at the end of the meeting, I need you to teach me that stuff, that listening stuff that you do. And I spent eight weeks um, with Brian talking to him about how I approached listening. And he said, if you could teach others this, you could change the world. And I walked away and I never thought about it again. And uh, four years ago, somebody took me aside and said, you've got to, you've got to teach the world how to listen. We need it more than ever. And then I thought, <laughs> there's too many people telling me this. Uh, it's something I need to do. So the quest for 100 million deep listeners was, was born then, Robert, where I basically said to my mentor at the time, I think I can train a million people in how to listen. And he scoffed at me and he said, come back next month with a zero added on and tell me how you're going to do that. I said, how can I possibly do 10 million people in the world? And he said, that's for you to figure out, not for me. So I came back a month later and I said, yeah, I figured it out with some software and thinking about uh, a listening coach based in Siri or Alexa or Google Home and building it as an app as well as doing podcast interviews with people like Robert. Um, we could get to 10 million easily. And he said, great, add a zero. And I went, oh, we're going <laughs> to play this game again. And he said, here's the point. If you think you can achieve it in your lifetime, it's not an ambitious enough goal. If you think you can't achieve it in your lifetime, then it's worth striving for. And whether I achieve 100 million deep listeners in my lifetime or not, Robert, it's not the point. The point is make it as aspirational as possible, or at least that's the point my mentor Matt was making to me. And it may not be achieved in my lifetime, but I know it will be achieved in the next three generations, given all the things I'm trying to do with deep listening. And how will you know? How does someone know when they've kind of crossed the chasm and they can call themselves a deep listener? I think deep listeners get really comfortable with this simple phrase. Do you mind saying that again, Robert? I really got distracted. They have the humility and yet the poise and confidence to know they're not a perfect deep listener, but equally it sends a signal to the person speaking that it's okay to make mistakes while you're listening. How many people have ever said to you, Robert, please say that again, with the intention to actually listen as opposed to, oops, sorry, you caught me while I was on a phone or a laptop. Could you say that again? Very rarely does someone um, genuinely ask to hear things a second time. Yeah. And I think the difference and when somebody is conscious enough to know that they're a deep listener, they know that they're going to get distracted. We know that because of the 125-400 rule. You can, I can speak at 125, yet you can listen at 400. So you'll, you can get bored, you can get distracted while this conversation's going on. And for half of the audience, it's happening right now. But a deep listener, a respectful listener, somebody who's there to help the speaker make sense of what they're saying, will be comfortable enough to say, I'm sorry. I apologize. Could you say that again? I got distracted. 
So I want to wrap up with two questions. And the first one is for that person that's driving right now who may have listened to this entire podcast, give them one thing that they can do in their next conversation to put them on the path towards becoming a deeper listener. Super simple. If there's one thing you can do is switch your device into flight mode, ideally switch it off. Ideally switch it off and put it in a bag, put it out of your arm's reach, give up to all the other distractions in the world and respect the person in front of you and signal to them, Robert, I'm going to switch my phone off. This is the most important thing I can do right now because giving you my full attention for the next 30 minutes is the most important thing for me. I'm here to listen to you. And in, there's two parts to that. One, switching the device off. Two, signaling that you're doing that to the other person. Uh, in, in about 83% of cases, people will reciprocate. People will switch off their device as well or they'll put it into flight mode, or they'll put it out of arm's reach, but the conversation will be completely different. I've done research on 1,410 listeners uh, in the workplace, and the number one thing they struggle with when it comes to listening isn't the act of listening, it's the distractions before they get to the act of listening. So if you want to just do one really simple thing, that would be it. Switch your phone to flight mode, if you're really addicted and if you're comfortable, switch it off, put it in your bag or put it out of arm's length. And um, Robert, you can check all these out at listeningmyths.com um, and you can get lots more tips there as well um, beyond the first one. And because I want to give you the chance to talk about the book and the cards and for the audience, let me just say, Oscar sent me the book before the podcast and I've been going through the cards and I found them very, very helpful. So Oscar, tell us a little bit about where people can find you and uh, where they can find your work. Yeah, the simplest thing to do is visit listeningmyths.com and you can download the five myths of listening. But more importantly, there's five simple steps to do for you to do to overcome those five myths of listening. So you've already heard the first one is to switch off that device. And uh, if you'd like to listen to other podcasts you can go to the deep listening podcast deep listening on your favorite podcast catcher and uh, we interview professional and personal listeners about how they listen we interview judges in courts we interview air traffic controllers we interview journalists we interview palliative care nurses who are dealing with people at the end of their life and have to listen to people differently and Remember the first skill that you get when you're conceived is the skill to listen. The last skill you lose, Robert, by the way, when you pass away, the last thing you lose if you're relatively healthy is your hearing. Um, so hearing and listening is part of the beginning of life and it's also part of the end of life. And we get questions from listeners on the podcast where people ask us about really tricky situations, how to listen ethically because sometimes you may be hearing a conversation that you shouldn't and how to acknowledge that for the person you're speaking to, how to listen in situations of conflict. And uh, yeah, the, the podcast series is a great way for people 
to engage with listening in a completely different way because we always promise three hacks, tips or tricks from the people that we interview. The playing cards that you mentioned, Robert, were designed out of a workshop where um, a couple of the people came in at the break and had created some cards just out of an exercise that we did and they said, oh, please don't throw away my card. And the playing cards that you're using now came out of the fact that somebody used the term my card and it was a scrap of paper. It was a 3M sticky note. And mm, I didn't realize that they put so much value on my card. And uh, a couple of uh, weeks after that, somebody else said it in a workshop. So the playing cards are designed around the five levels of listening. And some people practice with one card per week and that covers them off for the year. Some people practice with one card per day and try and master that card each day into a habit. So I've, uh, I've been watching with great joy your own 21-day listening challenge, Robert. What have you learned as you've gone through your listening challenge? I think what I've learned is I have a lot of work to do with repositioning the chatter in my own mind. I think I'm a deeply thoughtful person and I can spend so much of my time trying to solve other people's problems when I'm in conversation. And so for me, um, I've been spending a lot of time in the listening to yourself section, just trying to figure out how I can start focusing on the speaker and trying to help them understand what they're doing versus mm -hmm. feeling like they're asking me for advice and I need to help solve their problem. That's been a very, very big um, challenge for me and something that I'm going through right now. Yeah. And it, in the book, you've just beautifully described one of the four listening villains. We talk about the four villains of listening in the book and you've just described the shrewd listener really well. They're struggling in this battle in their mind to solve, to fix, to anticipate. And in doing so, they're not being present and actually helping the person to listen for themselves. So the lightest thing you can do as a shrewd listener now, Robert, is just to simply move your orientation for, am I listening for me or am I listening to help them make sense of what they're saying? Because ultimately the person with the problem is actually the person with the solution. Sometimes all they need to do is talk it out aloud and they come to their own solution. But if we impose our answers, our ways to fix, uh, a lot of the time, because it's not created by them they don't own it if they can discover their own solution they not only discover what to do but they discover how to do it themselves as well so the motivation and the results come from them you know what you just said the person with the problem is the person with the solution that really made me smile because i've never conceptualized it in that language, but that makes a lot of sense to me. You can give someone advice, but unless they really got there on their own, they're much less likely to, to go through with it. Well, great. I hope, hope that releases a bit of pressure for you in uh, trying to solve it. It sounds like there's a bit of a battle going on in your mind there. And, and it just makes listening so much easier. A lot of people say to me in the early days of the workshops that, you know, oh, it's this, this listening stuff is hard and my brain's overloaded and there's so many things. And I always say, oh, it's, 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 if you get to the other side of it, if you start to help 
the speaker listen to themselves, it becomes so much lighter. And for a lot of people, that's the switch that moves for them. And they go, oh, I can do that. And all of a sudden, uh, all conversations around the world kind of transformed and go to a completely different level. And this is, you know, we spent the 20th century learning how to speak. I think the listening hack of the 21st century, that productivity hack, that leadership hack that we all desperate to use because we say we don't have enough time in our day. The leadership hack of the 21st century is learning how to listen. I love that. And with that, I'd like to end. Oscar, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening, Robert.